As you come back, I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we will pick up our study at verse 17, of course, following the the text we looked at last week with Pastor Tyler, dealing with a number of other worship-related things, attire, hair, uh, all kinds of things. I want you to know that in handing Pastor Tyler that text to preach, it wasn't because I was chicken. It happened to be because it was the Sunday after Easter, and I was taking a, a, a Sunday off. So anyway, that's why we were there. Have you ever been in a in an argument? Uh, well, don't say yes just yet. Uh, some area of controversy where before long you find yourself arguing about what you didn't start out arguing about. Has that ever happened to you? You, you pause for a minute and say, wait a minute, where did we start? It wasn't about this at all. Uh, sometimes if, you, uh, if you're young and you're doing that with siblings, it's a skillful art, that shifting of the topic. Uh, moving from an area in which you might know you're going to lose, uh, subtly shifting to an area where you might win, um, and nevertheless moving away from the key point. Well, uh, the text in front of us today is one about which there has been a lot of controversy, Uh, different views, let's put it that way, Uh, because at its heart is Paul discussing what we often call communion, the Eucharist, Lord's table, Lord's supper, etc. It's part of a discussion, though, but sometimes people come to this text to, to discuss their view of what's happening when people celebrate communion. There are four views, of course. I take the moment just to highlight these for you because among us, uh, we come from different um, faith backgrounds as well. And you might have heard some of these different ones presented in your background as well. But there are four main views about what happens at communion. Uh, one is the traditional Roman Catholic view called transubstantiation that teaches that when the elements are are passed and the priest elevates the host, that those elements become, in fact, the body and blood of Christ. The, The more classic Lutheran view would be called consubstantiation, which would be the idea that the elements don't tr- uh, become the body and blood of Christ, but that in some way he is spiritually with them, con, with, um, with the elements. Uh, then there is the classic Reformed view, which discusses the real presence of Christ in the elements, pretty popular today in many circles, the real presence of Christ. Each of these has different texts that are used to support it. And then there's what you call the Zwinglian view, uh, following Ulrich Zwingli, uh, which is more that the elements are a way of remembering Christ. That tends to be our background as a church family, but you might recognize some of the others as well. Sometimes people come to the text looking for ways to support their view. And I'm here to say that's not the point of the text today as we come to it. All right. Those are interesting. I'm not minimizing any of those. But as Paul talks about communion here, he has something else on his agenda that is that is boy. I don't want to say that in any way minimize the discussion of what happens at communion. But I'm telling you what. There are other areas that are more pressing for Paul in this text, and I think they're more pressing for us as well. And so we want to look at the context, and I think we're going to get that in this bigger section, 17 to 34, and what Paul is describing and addressing is not just something from then, it is something in different ways and different forms that we deal with now, today, as well. And so we we want to come there. I am... 
eager for us to to pray together as we come to God's word. Uh, We need his help in this because sometimes we hear what we want to hear. And we don't notice the stuff that's a little more sensitive. I want to pray for us that we'll hear, that we'll hear the word of God. So join me in that if you would. Father, as we open your word together, we quickly confess that we are easily distracted. Our minds wander all over the place. And we are also um, selective in our hearing, often hearing the things that the person next to us or who isn't here really needs to hear. And uh, not noticing, perhaps ignoring easily, passing over the things that would convict us of, of a need to change. Father, would you help us today? Give us uh, ability to hear and then to love your truth and then in obedience to Christ to embrace it and do it. We, we ask you to do this in us, your great work. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look at that section in your notes called today's text, you see just a, a bit about this. This is part of a larger section that draws attention to some worship, worship practices. There are some areas where Paul says, I commend you. We saw that last week. And in today's text, he says, I do not commend you. But I, I point out here as, as we come to this discussion of communion and its implication for a church family, uh, his concern in this broader section is how cultural values and sinful attitudes find their way inside the church doors. I put that in quotes for a specific reason. Uh, when people think about the church doors or think about church gathered, they often think about, well, our own context of church buildings and so on. And I want to hasten to remind you as we come to first Corinthians, we're dealing with a time and a place when church buildings, as we don't know them did not exist. Historically, it was really not until the early three hundreds, the time of Constantine, when, when church buildings became in vogue. So if you, if you read the church gathered and you're thinking, you know, a little building and pews and eh, cute little steeple outside, yeah, not so much, not for several hundred years. For most of those first few hundred years of the church, uh, smaller groups of believers gathered in homes, house churches, we would call them today. I don't see that as, as prescribed in the Bible, like you should all meet this way, but it is what happened for the first several hundred years of the church, and that will have impact on us as we move along. But I want to read the text, and if you, if you look at your Bible, I want to just give you kind of the, the, the shifts that happen in the text. So that as I read it, it'll make a little more sense. In verses 17 to 22, there's a rebuke. This is some of the the most strongly worded stuff that Paul gives in this book. He, it's a between the eyes two by four. Okay. Then as a corrective to that, he takes them to just a few verses, 23 to 26. And he says, here's the way I understand communion, the Lord's table. Let me tell you why it's important. And he will. Then in verse 27, he begins to talk about the implications of that. And he talks about things like, oh, I don't know, God's discipline of believers. Wow. Who aren't getting it right. So pay attention. And then verses 33 and 34, he gives some, some suggestions on how to take it home. Here's some changes you might make in your church, the way you function to be more biblical. But those are some changes, really four sections in the text. But look for those as I, as I read. But I'm going to read then the word of God, 1 Corinthians 11, starting verse 17. Paul says this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. 
For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you or broken for you. As the King James would say, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. Wow. What is going on in Corinth? Right? It makes you ask. What am I, what am I not seeing? What's going on? Paul is very clearly animated here. He's got other things he's going to talk about later. He says at the end in verse 34, we'll get to that when I meet you. But for the moment, let me tell you. And then he kind of tees off on him. So something's going on here. And I, um, I, the way I have laid this out on your study sheet, you see in each, each of these three headings, uh, the gospel is the answer. The gospel is the answer. And I believe that very much. The gospel is the answer to divisions in a church and cultural divisions. The gospel is the only answer. Now, if you look at that section, I want to just talk a bit about history and culture and so on that I think will make sense of this. We do have information from secular history and archaeology and so on that help us to understand what's going on in the text. Not only the fact that early believers um, typically met in homes. Well, uh, whose homes did they meet in? Well, people who had larger homes, who are they? Yeah, typically people of greater means. All right. Um, interesting. If you study Jerusalem now, we're in Corinth for this. If you study Jerusalem, I remember a book I read a number of years ago called Jerusalem at the time of Christ that pointed out the, the vast difference between homes of the normal class or lower class and homes of the rich and homes of the normal class might have had one or two rooms, not bedrooms, rooms, right? And then those of the upper class, oh, much more. 
especially as you come to a place like, like Corinth, uh, boy, archaeology and history very clearly point out very, very large homes, places for meeting. You find this, by the way, in Acts 12, the story about Peter in prison. And when he came out, remember, he knocked on the door. Remember that in Sunday school? It was at the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many believers were gathered. John Mark, incidentally, author of Mark, probably came from a rich home. He probably was a privileged kid. You can think about that as you read the gospel that comes from his name, probably getting his information from Peter. But he came from a a privileged background. And one of the early church gatherings, according to Acts chapter 12, met in his the house in which he was raised. Um, But nonetheless, if you look at your study sheet, then the first century Corinth was rife with social and economic class divisions. This this is a historical fact in Corinth. The rich were rich and, by the way, enjoyed it very much. And. And yet there was a lot, a a lot of crowd, big, big crowd, a lot of people in those lower echelons of the social and economic pecking order. Uh, There's a very large slave population, a lot of working class folks. Now, what does that mean in terms of the way a church is gathered? Think with me, some implications of this. We're used to the working class, whole bunch of us, right? Um, Working certain hours and getting off. Oh, I don't know. Unless you're working swing shift or graveyard, get off around dinner time, right? Well, that's that's a more recent that's a more recent contribution to society. For many many years, that working class would work well past what we call quitting time to provide, especially if you're working in at somebody's house, to provide a meal for the people you're serving. And when they, then when you're done, you can leave. Further, the idea of working five days, getting two off, that's fairly recent, too. It was either working six or working seven. So the early church now often met Sunday evening when everybody got off work. Okay, now, piece together with me, uh, I want to give you a scenario that I think makes sense of the text. Larger home, wealthier people, when are they available to meet? Well, earlier than the, you know, those poor working stiffs. And so others who are also so privileged come together. Let's just say, oh, goodness sakes, when, when, when are you available? Oh, maybe, maybe four o'clock, maybe five. I'll bring over the hors d'oeuvres. You bring over this and a little bit of vino along the way. And the others will join us as they're able. So we get going. We eat, uh, we eat the chicken. We eat the turkey. We eat whatever it is. By the time the, we go a little while, we're down to bones left. Uh, the vino has come around a little bit. We're feeling very, very happy. When do the working stiff show up? Much later. What's left? Well, a few bones. Everybody's pretty happy. How do you feel? You're the working class who shows up at 930. You come into the church meeting. You've had a long day. My goodness sakes. You work from dawn till dusk. Tired. You know there's going to be a meal. You know that at the end of it, they're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is typically the way they did it, by the way. In those early days, not so much trays and things. We, we, we've done that, and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, but, but in somebody's home at the end of a meal, somebody's going to take a moment and say, we want to remember Christ here at this time, and they're going to break bread and, and, and lift a glass, and they're going to remember Jesus. So you show up hoping to break bread and remember Jesus with your, with your fellow believers. And some of them have had just a little bit too much to drink, and the food's gone, and you've had a long, hard day. And Paul says, you come together for the worse. You might as well have stayed at home. 
Now, I think that kind of a scenario makes sense of what's going on in the text. The homes of the rich, some are, are, are drunk by the time you get around to anything that should be important. And later on, his admonition in verse 33, uh, could you just wait for each other? Wait for people to come before you start your little party. How about that? You want to eat? Eat at your own house. Stop this. And if you look with me at your study sheet, that's, I think, is what Paul says. Paul says, I gave you those two words. Stop it. He's saying, stop it. You've got this cute little dinner party, and what you're doing is not representing the gospel. The haves have a lot, and whether you, whether you mean to or not, you're, you're pushing it in the face of those who don't have it. By your flaunting your excess and by your setting up the church schedule, to work best for certain classes of people. And he says in their setting, could you knock it off? Do I commend you in this? No, I do not. When you get together, it's for the worse because the rich, the rich are fat and happy and the working class. You know what? They might as well just stay home. Now, I I look with you at several things about the early church. And I think these help us to understand a, a bit about culture to which Paul writes. The church described in Acts, as you see here on your study sheet, decidedly multicultural and multi-ethnic, and it isn't always easy then or now to love thy neighbor. To visit the church in the book of Acts is to visit a church uh, very different from what often churches are today. Now, a lot of reasons for that. I'm not picking on anybody in particular. I'm saying the book of Acts describes much more of a multicultural, multi-ethnic setting. And I point you to several texts, Uh, Acts chapter 2, certainly it takes you to Pentecost, where all the different groups are are mentioned. I know they're there for a festival, but many of them lived in the city. I understand some of them were going to go home. In Acts 13, you find a prayer meeting that is is mentioned. There are five members at that prayer meeting. You can read them yourself. Saul or Paul is there. Barnabas is there, two good Jewish guys. There were two people who, by their name and their place of origin, were likely Africans, and then another guy, Menaean, who was, was, was a privileged guy. He was related to Herod. He would have been educated well. He was of the privileged class. A very diverse group. And it says they came together. They met with the Lord in prayer. And it was then that the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which they've called them. And they sent out Paul and Barnabas as missionaries. A culturally, ethnically diverse group. And then, of course, I've often mentioned Acts 15. Uh, the Jerusalem Council, and you remember that that was Big Church Fight 101, in which the Jewish crowd and the Gentile crowd ran into each other about how they were supposed to behave and how they were supposed to mix their cultures. Remember this? And it would have been very easy for Paul and all the, uh, not just Paul, but the, 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 the fathers, the church fathers at the time uh, in Acts 15, to just say, you know, you know the simple solution? I, I know. It's to have First Baptist Church Jewish and First Baptist Church Gentile. And you can just do it the way you like to do. Wouldn't that be easier? And that's not what they did. He said, and it's all over the New Testament, book of Ephesians. Just try reading book of Ephesians. You're going to hear the same thing. Christ has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall. And basically, he looks at everybody. and He says, you know what? The blood of Jesus is a little richer than that. And you people who have your little way of doing it, your little cultural things. You know what? Is that more important than Jesus? Knock it off. And Acts 15 is about bringing together two very different groups, Jewish crowd, Gentile crowd, and saying, okay, now let's come together and let's walk in peace. 
Huh. That's going to involve a little giving on everybody's part. That's Acts 15. Now, similarly, uh, just I, I mentioned Acts 16. That tells the story of the beginning of the church at Philippi. And the text specifically tells you three of the charter members. You know who they are? Sure. Lydia, right? A white collar businesswoman. A slave girl. Well, a slave girl from whom Paul cast out a demon and a jailer working class. So, uh, you know, white collar, slave class, working class, um, a businesswoman, a working guy, probably a single gal who knew something about demon possession. Wow. That's the backbone of the church of Philippi. And over and over again in the book of Acts, God does this. He pulls together people from different backgrounds, people who ought not necessarily get along or even be friends. And because of Jesus, he says, meet your new family. The only way that works is if they love Jesus more than they love themselves. Well, this is interesting. I, I point out on your uh, you know, sheet there, Paul tells Philemon, you remember the story in the book, so named Philemon, a first century slave owner, Onesimus, his runaway slave who comes across Paul in a time of running comes to Christ. Paul sends him back to his slave owner and he says to Philemon, Receive him back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a much-loved brother. Do you think that didn't upset the apple cart? Man, this is a cultural revolution. See this guy? He's now your brother in Christ. Let's talk about how you treat him now, Tiger. Huh? Man, James, of course, book of James. He describes a scenario, chapter 2, in which two people walk into your church assembly. One is so clothed and decked out that it's clear that he's a have. He's dressed well. He's got gold jewelry on. He looks very fine. You look at that man and say he's done well for himself. At the same time, somebody else comes walking in the door who's not dressed like that. And James says, do you dare pay attention to that rich guy and tell that other guy to sit in the corner? Is that what you're going to do? Really? (sighs) He takes him to task. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Some things here about divisions, differences, differences and divisions are not the same. We're not made out of cookie cutters. We are to have unity, but not uniformity. Do you know the difference? Christians are not uniform. We are not all alike. We have different passions, different likes and dislikes, different ways of thinking on all kinds of things. We are not, we do not have to be uniform. Unity, unity is not based on uniformity. Differences alone are wonderful. Divisions, not so much. You can be very different from people and still have a sense of unity. Now, the gospel, I'm saying, is God's answer to these kinds of divisions. I shift to the next section there on your study sheet, verses 23 to 26. And I want to read again these, these verses in which Paul speaks of, of what we call communion. And I want to do so with a, a certain emphasis. I want this on your mind as I comment in a minute. So Paul then answering this problem in Corinth, rebuking them for their division and for their, their allowing the upper class to kind of be privileged people. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I, I, maybe it is just me, but I don't think so. 
we, we have a tendency to read this text through our cultural lens. And our cultural lens at this time and place in this country is decidedly individualistic. We are not as community-oriented as other cultures. Some cultures are very community-oriented. They think that way automatically. U.S., no, not so much. We think individually. What is, the difference that that makes is this. As you read this, it's very easy to think. You're, okay, you're sitting in your chair. Trays are coming by, the bread and the juice. It's, it's easy to think, Jesus did this for me. Is that true? Well, yes, of course it is. But is that the emphasis in the text? And I don't think it is. Every you, Y-O-U, in, in, these word, in these verses is plural. This is my body, which is for you all. See? This is my body, which is for you. This is my blood shed for you. The emphasis is not so much you and you and you and you. It's, it's body. It's community. It's us. That's the emphasis in the text. You're not wrong to say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. That's, that's, that's wonderful, and you're not wrong. But I think that following on the rebuke in verses 17 to 22, where he's taken him to task for, for only thinking of themselves, I think the, the, the clear emphasis in 23 to 26 about body, I think it's intended. It, he, Jesus died for us, folks, all of our differences All of our differences. Some of us are uh, from different backgrounds economically. I didn't know until I got to junior high that I was from a poorer class. Didn't know that. I went to the poor elementary school. Uh, Didn't think about it. Everybody else at the elementary school was kind of in the same boat. Then I got to junior high. That's when I discovered designer jeans that I'd never seen. I didn't know about that. I saw these people wearing these fancy clothes and thought, oh, buddy, I am not like you. Huh. I had that awareness all of a sudden of what I didn't have. I I was blissfully ignorant all the way through grade school. I I remember. I remember a year where I had one set of clothes I wore Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and something else I wore Tuesday, Thursday. It wasn't that my parents were bad. It's just there were six kids and, you know, one income and you're getting by. Just go to school. Put your clothes on. You showed up in junior high. It's like, man, you guys have, you're not wearing the same thing you wore two days ago. That's weird. Huh. The gospel's for everybody. Some have had education opportunities others haven't had. Some drive cars that are, you know, it's really a crisis when the heated seat breaks. And others, you know what? The wire holding the bumper on, praise the Lord, it survived another week. You know, Unity in the body of Christ isn't based on all that stuff. Paul's taken the task because somehow in their church life, they've allowed those things to come front and center and all the haves were rubbing that, their possessions and their riches, riches in the face of those people who didn't have much. And the body was being divided by their behavior. Maybe they saw it. Maybe they didn't. Uh, put uh, a quote here on your study sheet from Don Carson, his little book called Love in Hard Places. It's a pretty um, strongly worded quote. I I know you can read it, but I'm going to do so anyway because I want to emphasize just a couple of things, if I may. We live in a divided culture too, folks. 
don't we? Don Carson says the church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, accents, jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've been saved by by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. If you look up at that list, I'd like you to just reflect for a minute on how many of those are divisions in our own culture. What do you read about in the news? What are people fighting about? What are some of you fighting about? No, really. I mean, our, our culture is in an upheaval about, about, you know, the upper 1%, the 1%, and, and um, uh, economic equality. Do I dare mention politics? There are Trump lovers and Trump haters, even in the same church. Huh? Nationality issues, job issues, white, <clears throat> white collar, blue collar, no collar. And sometimes these things are bantered around in such a way that they, they irritate other people. Am I saying don't have opinions? No, of course not. That's not the point. The point is what you do with your opinion, isn't it? And how much you shove it in the face of people who disagree with you. Right? There are NRA people in this room and non-NRA people in this room. There are animal lovers and uh, get a skin. I'd love to wear it. There are some of you here too. And the point of this text is, you know what? That, that is not what we're all about. You can have your opinion on all kinds of things, but the minute those opinions begin to be shoved in the face of somebody else to the point of irritating and dividing a church body, that's wrong. That also involves all of us having thick enough skin to, to grin and bear it. When you come across somebody who disagrees, you read a bumper sticker in the parking lot and you go, they go to church here? You know what? Relax, you know, relax, let it go and drive on. Okay. Just because it's on a bumper does, or, you know, their Facebook page doesn't mean it's intended for it to irritate you. So a little bit of thick skin, but the, the point of the text though is well taken Because Paul says, wait a minute, you're going to come together and you're going to celebrate this wonderful moment of unity. This is my body broken for all of us. And then you're going to walk out in the foyer and and just kind of, you know, get in somebody else's face over something stupid. Really? Are you? And particularly, as he describes in the text, some patterns here uh, as they got together that, that that divided rather than united. Now, verses 27 to 32 I point out the gospel comes with accountability. And this is that sobering text. You noticed as I read it, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. I take that to mean that these are those folks who outside the, the, the body gathered are disregarding other people. They are not loving their brother or sister. They're dividing people by their, by their ill behavior and then they're going to come all come together and say, well, this is all about Jesus. He's saying, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Are you a divider or a uniter? Which one are you? And if you're a divider out there, uh, how dare you walk in here and pretend like you're a uniter? You tracking with me on that? And he's, he's calling for congruity between the two. If you're, if you believe in united body of Christ and one blood shed for us in the blood of Jesus, then live it out there too. And love your brother and sister like you intend, like you should. Now, verse 28, take a look at this. Let a person examine himself. 
And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. These are things for you to think about. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, stop for a minute, discerning, discerning the body. There are pages and pages written on what this is about. Is it me looking at my own behavior and actions? Uh, I'm going to skip the whole uh, discussion of the academy and tell you what I believe. I think that he's talking here about discerning the body as in the body of Christ. That's one of the major views. I think that's a good one in light of the bigger discussion all the way back to verse 17. That is, the one who eats and drinks, come to communion time, with, with disregard the body of Christ. Guess what? Eats and drinks judgment on himself because God, listen, God does not take it lightly when his children don't act like they're his children. Do you hear this? God notices this, and he is not impressed when his children kick and scratch and bite each other. No, he's not impressed. He says, in fact, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Oh, my goodness. God's judgment can come. God's discipline. I have some comments for you here under uh, this category. The gospel comes with accountability. It's not simply about how a person behaves as, as communion itself is served. As I was young, being raised in the little church where I was raised, I remember sitting in church, you know, when your feet don't hit the floor, you're sitting on a pew, and you want to swing your feet a little bit. Uh, 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 that's on the bad list. We don't swing our feet. Um, chewing gum, of course, was completely out of the question. And I remember counting the holes in the tiles. We had tiles with dozens and dozens of holes looking for patterns. And it, that was not good either. You keep your head down. You don't, you don't, <laughs> um, behavioral thing. And, Paul's point isn't, don't swing your feet or don't chew gum. It isn't that. No, it's, it's what all is going on in your life out here too, not just in here. Uh, take a look at this. Some of you are weak and ill and some have died. He says, is it just because, so the weak and ill, <clears throat> excuse me, and those who have died, are they the ones who've transgressed? Interestingly here, and I have it there in your study sheet, sometimes in the Bible, If you look at the Old Testament, especially, you'll find God disciplines an entire community of believers because of sin in the camp. So it may or may not be, and certainly not the case that every illness or death is because of God's discipline. That is not what the Bible teaches at all. But clearly, in this case, God was judging this church family. And Paul says, you know what? Um, God is trying to get your attention, and it's time you would seek him. So we we do not do well if we look around for sick people and say, probably sinned. You might want to look in the mirror and wonder if it's your fault. Maybe there's sin in your camp. And God's discipline is coming on the community at large. Now, verses 33 and 4 then, 33 and 34, he he comes with some recommendations. And here I come uh, with some comments for all of us as well. Verse 33, one of his solutions is, hey, you know that cute little dinner party that starts before everybody can get there? How about if you just kind of quit doing that? Why don't you wait till everybody can come? And along the way, if you're saying, yeah, but that's when we eat. He said, well, then eat at your own house. And in your cultural setting at this particular time, instead of dividing people social and economically, uh, how about if you wait till everybody can come? It might be nine o'clock at night till everybody gets off of work. And then you all come and your focus will be on Christ, not on the hors d'oeuvres. Maybe, maybe that's a solution in, in their day, their time, for their situation culturally. That's, that's Paul's suggestion. Wait for one another. He's not talking like we sometimes do of waiting for one another till everybody has a portion. That's, that's nice, and it, it's a nod in that same direction. But in their cultural setting, I don't think it was about that at all. He's just saying, wait till everybody can come. 
Don't leave the scraps for the poor people. Your brother for whom Christ died. So come together and let it not be for judgment. And I ask you here on your study sheet as well. Uh, Paul tells the Corinthians to change their church practice to better reflect the gospel. That's something that every church should be able to do. And I ask you here to think about this is probably something in your community groups. Uh, What are some ways that local churches sometimes allow cultural divisions to affect their practice and values? You might think about that a little bit. Maybe there are areas we need to make adjustments to, to be uh, more welcoming to people of all sorts and all, all socioeconomic situations and so on. We don't want to perpetuate cultural divisions. And then I ask you personally, are there people or people groups that you tend to hesitate reaching out to? Is that true for you? Are there people that due to your background or where you were raised or whatever you got problems with? Maybe a person of a different skin color, a different language background, or one of those immigrants who are coming and taking your jobs, whatever it is. There are people that you just don't like. Well, guess what? That person might be a brother for whom Jesus died. And how dare you despise them? How dare you? They come to Jesus the same way you do. Galatians 6 talks about doing good to all especially those of the household of faith. The doing good to all applies beyond the household of faith. Galatians 6, read it. Verse 10, let us do good to all. People of God, down through the years, have made those things a practice. Do you know to read some church history moments? There are some times you can look at and just and, and be so proud of the people of God. Uh, history History tells of times of plague and famine and death when people were fleeing cities. You know this? Because death was in the city. And at the very same time that people were fleeing the city, Christians were rushing in to care for the sick and dying, knowing they'd probably get the plague and die too. And they went in anyway. We've got to love our brothers. They were the ones caring for those who died down the road, not just the believers. It was Christians who did that. At great cost to themselves. Uh, times to be proud of the body of Christ. So I ask us in our divided day, divided over economics, divided over race, divided over all kinds of things in our culture around us, and sometimes those seem, things seep into the church. Where are divisions to be healed? And I'm saying this the one place to heal them is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have no other answer. These are things you need to think about. And I'd like to pray for us that God will help us to think about them. And I'd love to have you stand with me as we stand before the Lord. Let's ask God to help us to think deeply and soberly about these things ourselves. Our Father, it is, it is so clear as we come to your word that it's pretty easy to look at other people, especially a long time ago, and talk about how they were so bad for what they did. And it's a lot harder to look at ourselves in the mirror and see areas of change and then to embrace them. But I pray that you'd help us to do just that. Help us to think deeply about these things, maybe in our community groups, talking about it very honestly. Places where common cultural divisions just seep right into the church, right into our own lives and our own hearts. Different things, attitudes in our own, in our own life. The way we treat people. And Father, would you help us, because of the gospel, to come to grips with these things, and then to make appropriate and right changes, 
motivated by the spirit of God. I pray that you'd help us with this in Jesus name. Amen.